Tim? What's up, man? This is Tanner Jesse. What's up? How you doing? What's up, brother? How you doing? Good. I'm doing good. Uh, so there's a big mix-up right now with the lightweight. It's uh, Charles Oliveira just missed weight. So what do you yeah. what do you make of that? You know, half a pound could you know potentially change his life. So what do you make of this? I mean, I I think it's unprofessional at this point in your career to be missing weight for sure. There's no doubt about it. But realistically, it's gonna work itself out. You know, I don't think it's as big of a deal for the the, the his career as people say. You know, I yeah. guess maybe it is if he loses the fight. You know, yeah, I don't. And see. he wasn't even in the title, and it's all a big old. But realistically, you know, it's a half a pound. He missed weight. Is it gonna dramatically affect his career? No, yeah. it, it, it won't. It's gonna affect his career. If he gets his ass kicked by Justin Gaethje, that's gonna affect his career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A half a pound weight miss. I mean, look, it ain't good. It ain't good. But at the same time, it's not nearly as pivotal as uh, people try to pretend it is. Yes, from what I understand, uh, if Justin Gaethje wins, he wins the title. If Charles Oliveira wins, then it's nothing. So do you think think that changes the kind of the feeling of the fight? Or do you think it's still the same? Uh, No, it doesn't matter. Listen, I'm a fighter, okay? A fight to fight, dude. All the connotations you put on it and all the titles and glamour and glitz and who's at the fight and the money and the this and the that and all that stuff, that's a bunch of stuff that people who don't fight think matters. But to fighters, what matters is fighting. So when it's time to fight, whether Oliveira's fighting for 30 bucks or $30 million, he's fighting to win the fight. That is what he's proficient at. That is what he's good at. Fighting people and beating them up. Submission, uh, knockout, doesn't matter. And you know, you can add a bunch of stuff to that. You can add a bunch of accolades. You can make it for a title or a this or a pound for pound or all that. But all that stuff is really the, the shit that, you know, bean counters keep track of. The pencil pushers. But the guys who fight can give a shit. They just want to fight, and when it's time to fight, they're trying to smash somebody. That's all, man. That's as simple as it is to a fighter. At the end of the day, they want to have they want to make money doing it. There's no doubt. But whether they're fighting, you know, over uh, in an airplane like Mike Tyson beat up some dude for aggravating him, yeah. or whether they're fighting for thirty million dollars, they're fighters. And they're going to whip your ass or at least try when it's time to fight. All the other stuff is kind of just ancillary stuff. Yeah, so you've, uh, you coach with Dustin Poirier, or you coach Dustin Poirier, and he put out some stuff about how he don't know who's going to win the fight now. Or Does the outcome of this fight affect what Dustin does in his future? Because now if Charles wins, then it's nothing. The title's still vacant. Do you think Dustin's up next for this? Or do you know? Well, I mean, I think Dustin's in the picture. You know, there, yeah. there's no doubt. Dustin's definitely in the picture. Some way, somehow, uh, a guy like that is always in the picture. Because 
People love to watch him fight. Uh, he's a crowd favorite. He's one of the best lightweights that the UFC has ever seen. Uh, people love the way he fights. He's beaten Justin Gaethje pretty handily. Yeah. So, you know, he's in the picture. How yeah. that goes with who wins here, who wins there, how it shuffles down, I don't know. Have you Dustin interested for sure? Have you talked? Have you have you talked to Dustin since this happened? No, no, not since today. No, this just happened. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I had training sessions or what, but um, I want to get back to you now because I wanted to make that a point now since it just happened. But you grew up in Louisiana. I've had Cody Vera and Dustin Poirier on this podcast. They have their point of view growing up in Louisiana. What's it like for you growing up in Louisiana? Uh, you know, man, I love, I love Louisiana now, yeah. you know? Yeah. But uh, growing up in Louisiana is hard. It's a, it's a tough, it's a tough area to come from, you know? Yeah. Um, pretty lower class, lower middle class. Uh, everybody grows up pretty rough, um, and I grew up fighting, you know, I, I didn't, it wasn't really that much wrong with getting a fist fight. Yeah. Um, I grew up in some tough areas of town and, and I got in a lot of fights as a yeah. kid. Uh, and I got beat up enough to know I, I, uh, I wanted to learn how to fight. So my father was at a boxing gym when I was a young kid. I boxed at a boxing gym and wrestled at the YMCA and got involved with martial arts pretty early. Uh, because I didn't want to get beat up. Yeah. <laughs> That's the facts of it. You know, I, I know some other people say, oh, I was whatever. I mean, I don't, I don't remember necessarily being bullied, um, but I remember getting my ass kicked a couple of times and not thinking that was cool at all. And uh, so, and another part about Louisiana, man, the weather's tough. You know, we get devastated by hurricanes and, it's just a poor area, you know, so it's yeah. a tough place to come up. I think that's why so many guys from the South, you know, you see as fighters, we're kind of bred fighters, born fighters, and, and our dads are kind of tough on us, and, and, and we're fighters. But all in all, Louisiana's a great place, you know. Today, I've moved back here. I lived in Los Angeles for a long time, Southern California, and then lived in Houston and moved to Vegas for a while when I was with the UFC, but... You know, there's nothing like Louisiana. The people are incredible. The food is unbelievable. And uh, it's just a great place to raise children and to to uh, be a part of the community. The community here is incredible. So I love it now, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as a kid, I probably would have said it differently. Yeah. I found some stuff on you that you might have joined the military. Is that right? Yeah, real young. Uh, to get out of Louisiana as fast as possible. I joined the military so I could, uh, you know, find jujitsu back then, 1995. Mm. There was no jujitsu really anywhere. And I knew that there was a, some schools in Southern California, some schools in New York. I didn't know how I was going to get to New York City. <laughs> but I, I realized if I joined the Navy, I could probably get stationed somewhere in Southern California. And uh, that's what I did, and uh, found jujitsu in 1995, and started training, and 
been training ever since. You mentioned jiu-jitsu. You have a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and a black belt in judo. What's What's the difference to you between, you know, KOing somebody and, you know, choking them out, putting them in arm bars? Why is that so uh, likable for you other than, you know, KO and TKOing people? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I like, I was fascinated with jujitsu, you know. As a kid, I studied martial arts and read martial arts comic books and watched Bruce Lee movies and. <sighs> I didn't know, like, you could really go learn a martial art that would teach you how to destroy human anatomy. You know, you kind of, as a kid, I did martial arts and, you know, no offense, but it always kind of just came down to a kind of a lot of bullshit, you know, where I'm I'm over here swinging a sword and jumping around in silk pajamas. (laughs) This is crazy. This isn't, this is not, I mean... I, even as a nine-year-old, I knew that this was bullshit. Like, they were doing this to impress me and impress my parents, but I couldn't do this in real life. Like, this was nuts. It wasn't until I started to find real combat sports, like wrestling. And, you know, I was lucky enough to find a martial arts instructor who had a very heavy boxing background, but was also a karate black belt named Joe Ancona in New Orleans. And, uh, he studied almost mixed martial arts. He did a, a hot keto variation where we did a little grappling, we boxed a little bit, we did a little kickboxing, and he fought in those old 1980s, you know, ESPN kickboxing mm-hmm. matches where the guy has like a, a tethered haircut and a, and a handlebar mustache and pink silk pants with those little foot protector pads. Yeah. And they would, you know, kickbox each other, like... <laughs> And I'd go to his fights. I remember going to his fight at the Landmark Hotel and standing on my chair and freaking out and thinking, oh, my God, Sensei Joe just knocked the dude straight out the box. (laughs) And so I was just, I thought martial arts was incredible, the whole thing. But when I uh, joined jiu-jitsu and started to learn how to submit people and what jiu-jitsu was and how powerful it made a person to know that, and it didn't matter what went down, you always had a way to get a hold of somebody and get them in a position where um, you could finish them if you needed to. Mm. Uh, that methodology uh, gave you a lot more power, you know, than standing there and trying to punch somebody or kickbox somebody. Because, yeah. you know, in any striking engagement, even any great boxer or or King Monster will tell you, you know, the other guy's always got a striker's chance. Yeah, you always got a, a puncher's chance. The guy yeah. can always hit you and knock you out. But with jiu-jitsu, that seemed to not necessarily be the case. So I fell in love with jiu-jitsu for many years. Uh, but I definitely like hitting people. I don't think any of my <laughs> UFC fights, I did any takedowns. Yeah. Um, and people would, you know, bitch at me like, Tim, you're an amazing black belt on the ground, but you just stand up and, and try to knock everybody out, you know? And, yeah. and my response to them was, uh, go get your own damn career. This is my <laughs> career, and I'm going to do whatever I want. And this is how I want to fight. It's how I grew up fighting. It's how I'm going to fight. We're going to do jiu-jitsu when you fall down or I fall down. But until then, we're going to fight. And uh, I know a lot of guys, you know, Dustin definitely fights like that, and so does Matt Schnell. And, uh, Aaron Phillips, we're fighters, man. You know, we are fighters. What's, but 
if we got to fight on the ground, we will. Uh, but we prefer to fight, you know? What's the difference between jiu-jitsu and judo? Judo is a sport, okay? So yeah. the truth is, jiu-jitsu was judo mm-hmm. before judo was judo. So Brazilian jiu-jitsu came from Japan, yeah. you know, and it came from uh, Mitsu Maeda, and there's a lot of controversy about exactly what judo kai uh, came to Brazil and transferred that knowledge to the Gracies. There's a lot of books out there, uh, Closed Guard by Robert Drysdale, that kind of fly in the face of a lot of the stories that we've been told by the Gracie family. But in any case, men, whoever they may be, either uh, Maeda or others, definitely came to Brazil uh, in the late 1800s, uh, and early 1900s and taught judo. Uh, there was a huge Japanese uh, immigration to Brazil to help with farming. And uh, Maeda was supposedly there as a diplomat to help with relations between those Japanese farmers and the Brazilian government and to create better civil rights for the Japanese people at the time. And the story goes that, you know, one of the diplomats that Maeda was dealing with was a man named Gastel Gracie, who had five sons. And as a way to say thank you to Gastel Gracie's uh, efforts with the Brazilian political engine, um, Maeda taught his sons jujitsu. I don't know how much of that story is true or not true, but in some context, Judo practitioners, students of Shiguri Kano, who's the father of Judo, were in Japan, and they taught many Brazilians their art of Judo. At some point, uh, Carlos Gracie Jr., Carlos Gracie Sr., and Elio Gracie created some new positions uh, in, in their story. But if you look at Judo around the world and, you know, Koshin Judo and Judo in Japan, those positions had been created long before the Gracies. But uh, Maeda, and, I mean, Jigori Kano took that old form of Judo, which was Jujutsu, and he turned it into Judo, which was a sport that could be taught safely to children, military, police officers, can be used for physical fitness and at the highest level, could be brought to the Olympics as a sport. That sport of judo is what we see today in Olympic judo. And the majority of that sport emphasizes stand-up takedowns, throws, if you will. And those throws result in complete points, which kind of end the match. But in the dojo, when you would throw someone, you brought them to the mat, and then you continue to grapple until you submitted them. A lot of those things got pulled from judo, the submission aspect, the choking aspect, the leg locking aspect, to make the sport a little safer for kids and for high school athletes and college athletes and Olympic sport. Um, But the Gracies kind of went back to that original uh, Japanese jujutsu style. And, uh, you know, in their minds, created Gracie jujitsu, but really kind of went back to the original judo before it was turned into a sport. I look at it like this. The art of jujitsu, the art of jujitsu mm-hmm. is pretty big. 
And the sport of judo is a small circle inside the larger art of jiu-jitsu. So judo is a sport, jiu-jitsu is the art. That's kind of how we describe it. When you joined the military, you of course, you were learning all this stuff. When you came into Ultimate Fighter 7, did that kind of give you an edge on everybody else? No. No, really? Uh, in the military, I didn't learn all this stuff. Like, I went seek out jujitsu schools in my off time while I was mm-hmm. in the military. Oh, so you I didn't... I also trained with the All-Navy Judo team when I was in the Navy and did judo. But I wasn't being taught martial arts by the military. I was seeking out martial arts because the military put me in a place where those jujitsu teachers were. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. But, you know, what gave me a lot of confidence for the Ultimate Fighter 7 was more about the fact that, man, I had been coaching and teaching and training guys since probably UFC 24. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was out in Southern California training with Tito Ortiz, Rico Rodriguez, Dan Henderson, Chuck Liddell, Tiki Goshen, Rob McCullough, and all those guys back in the 90s early 2000s i moved to houston uh after eve edwards saw one of my fights him and i opened a dojo together in houston called revolution dojo and i started coaching and cornering ease and in our travels i had trained with and trained under tons of very high level mma fighters and athletes and so when the ultimate fighter seven came i was almost at the point where i was finished fighting i had a a really good job doing geophysical research or exploration, and I was almost kind of done at that point, but the opportunity kind of pulled me back in. But what gave me confidence was uh, the training hall, you know, training with so many high-level guys up until that point, and um, I thought I could do pretty well based on how I'd done in training. So that's really where I kind of felt confident going into the Ultimate Fighter stuff. How many fights did you have under your belt before Ultimate Fighter? About 40 or 50. Really? 40 or 50? Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, it it is and it isn't, you know, to be honest with you. Because kind of back in the day, we were fighting a lot more, Mm -hmm. uh, but there wasn't a lot of like people had rep, you know, the rep had, you know, pathology and fight, sure dog, like I didn't know that existed, you know, Mm -hmm. and so... Southern California fighting was illegal, but we were going down to Mexico and doing uh, MMA fights and a bullfighting. They, they, they had a bullfighting ring and they put a boxing ring in the middle down in TJ. And a bunch of us would go there on the weekends and just have a scrap with somebody. But a lot of the guys we fought were like, you know, military servicemen who, you know, didn't know a lot. And so, you know, we were kind of, well, I mean, the sport was in the 90s. So, you know, it's funny, but it's not funny because there really wasn't even any gyms to train at. There wasn't, it was nowhere near the level of professionalism that we have today. You know, yeah. um, one of the shows I fought in, in Arizona, we almost got arrested uh, because uh, I forgot who this, who this guy was. Uh, was a, a senator in Arizona. He might've been the governor, pretty famous Republican, but he tried to shut our show down. He, he ran for president. I can't remember his name, but 
He, he tried to shut our show down while we were there, called it human cockfighting and all kind of stuff. I was fighting at the time when those things were going on, where, you know, my parents weren't really, they were kind of embarrassed about what I was doing, you know? Nowadays, wow. you know, they're, it's not the same, you know, they're proud now, but, but they're proud now in hindsight because now it's acceptable. It's something to be proud of. But back then, I mean, it, people thought I was crazy. Like I was fighting in cage fights, like a some kind of crazy psychopath. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it was a little crazy though. You know, we didn't have gloves on. Sometimes and gloves were not required back then. All they really had was those old uh, boxer Jenks gloves. They were kind of garbage. And I mean, it was just kind of savage. It was just, that's just the way the sport developed back in the day. Yeah. We used to do these fights in conscious cage combat, which were man crazy where they were open hand, but full jiu-jitsu on the ground, but, I mean, we were doing all kinds of stuff, man, just to try to compete in this sport that we were all so fascinated with, but I have kids now at the gym ask me, Coach Tim, how many amateur fights did you do? And I'm like, zero, you know, none. We didn't have amateur fights. There wasn't, no one ever even heard of an amateur MMA fight. You're going in a cage. There's nothing amateur about it. That was the sentiment back then, you know? I got paid for every fight I fought at, but, you know, sometimes it was 50 bucks and a ticket to uh, Club A, or People's, down in Tijuana for all I could drink after the fights. Because that's how rudimentary and backwater the sport was kind of back then. And, And it wasn't that we were trying to do anything illegal or or break any rules. There just were no rules. There was no sport. There was no boxing commission or, or athletic commission sanctioning this stuff. But even the UFC back then was struggling to get sanctioned. So those of us that were fighting on a lower level than that, you know, it was just madness, to be honest. So I know guys like Rich Clemente who have, I mean, he probably has 50 or 60 more fights on his record then are actually on his documented record. Eve Edwards, the same. Carlo Prater, the same. Um, and then many fights I've had that were even during that time, those promoters, they don't report the results to anyone back in the day. They didn't even know you could report the results. So that's just a fact. You know? I had a ton of fights, though, before that. And any guys that were fighting back then, any guys that were fighting back then, will tell you that's, that's absolutely true for their careers as well. We were just fighting a lot more and we didn't know what we were doing and there was no real record keeping and it was kind of crazy. So with all that experience coming into the Ultimate Fighter, uh, how much did the Ultimate Fighter help you during your career after that? Because I know that during the Ultimate Fighter you get a lot of high-level training or whatever. How much did that help you in your career after? Yeah, I think it helped a lot, you know. I think it helped I think it helped and I think it hurt, you know. I yeah. think it helped me a lot because uh it showed me I belong there. Yeah. Um but it also exposed me to we trained crazy back then, you know. We scored yeah. all the time. We hit each other hard all the time. And uh one of the reasons I kinda walked away from the sport was because, you know, I started to get worried about CTE and brain trauma and brain injuries. I had some hard fights, um, but no fight was nearly as hard as the way we were training. You know, we were training like psychos back then. And, you know, truthfully, we didn't know the difference. You know, you can watch Fightville and see the way we trained in Fightville 
is just crazy. Today, I would never let my guys train that way. I'd never. But back then, it was just kind of, it, it was new. We were new. Yeah. We were doing our best. You know, we were trying to figure this sport out as best we could. And you had teams like Militech who, you know, that's the way they thought and that's the way they trained. And they were one of the best teams in the country. And, you know, we thought we needed to be like them. Mm -hmm. If you went train at Extreme Couture back around, you know, 2007, 2008, 2009, dude, listen, <laughs> you, you was getting your number pulled by the... I mean, there were days where I remember days in sparring where I would do six or seven five-minute rounds. Okay? Wow. I'd do one round with Vandalay Silva, literally like I'm fighting my way out of an insane asylum for five minutes. Wow. And then I'd do a round with Forrest Griffin, a round with Marvin Campman, a round with Vitor Belfort, a round with... Uh, uh, Mike Pyle around, I mean, like, like murderers row, you know, and we would do it twice a week and we wow. thought this is what we should be doing. And I'm not sure if we all remember the drive home, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like we were knocking our childhood memories out of each other's brains every day, not on purpose, but that was just the sentiment we trained at. You know, I do a round with Randy Couture, you know, literally getting turned into uh, a ground lamb underneath his devastating ground in town. Like, how are you going to stop Randy Couture from taking you down? What are you going to do? You're just going to lay there and play bullshit half board and get smashed on. And that was the way we kind of trained. It made you tough. Uh, it made you resilient. But it hurt. You know, it hurt. Yeah. And, you know, later in my career, when I started having children, I was a little bit older. I think when I decided to kind of walk away from the sport, I was 34 or so. Wow. And I just looked at my career and said, man, you know, I'm 34 years old. You know, how many more years of this do I have? How many more times do I really do I really need to get hit in the face or my brain beat in for another five years? Like, uh, I walked in my daughter's room one night, and she was maybe one years old. And she was sleeping in her crib. And I, I went up to her crib, and I, I just... For the first time in my life, fighting, you know, it didn't matter no more. You know, I just, yeah. I wanted to make sure that I was healthy and that I was going to be able to walk that little girl down the aisle one day yeah. and be able to pull my weight as her dad. And my specific uh, goals in fighting or in, you know, beating Anderson Silva or, or having a barn burner with Chris Lieben or getting that one back against fucking chill Sonnen or whatever mm -hmm. all kind of fell by the wayside and I said man Tim you know you've been getting hit for 15 years by some of the best guys in the world mm -hmm. you know so you're getting beat up like, pretty hard paychecks are worth it right yeah you're getting pretty you're getting beat up pretty hard every training session Did, do you feel yeah. the effects of that at all now or is or is that all kind of went away no I definitely feel the effects absolutely I definitely I mean I, I definitely have the effects um, of TBI or CTE, not to the level that a lot of other people do, but I forgot a lot of my childhood. I forgot a lot of my early adult time. Um, you know, it's affected my moods. I have to control my mood a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
it's affected me a lot, you know, yeah. absolutely. I don't really talk about it a lot. Yeah. It's not that I mind talking about it. Just no one walks up to me and is like, so you have a traumatic brain injury? I mean, yeah. it's, not a, it's not. Plus, I'm an intimidating character, you know. I, I, really, I really wish I wasn't an yeah. intimidating character, but I tend to intimidate the shit out of people. As soon as they see me, I'm just a, an intimidating figure. Yeah. I have a... Uh, Arrest, you know, I, you know, some women say like arresting bitch face. Yeah, I have a resting murderer face. <laughs> like, whenever I just have a normal face, it kind of looks like I want to murder someone. So that doesn't go over well. But it's not that I don't mind talking about it because I'm pretty honest about everything. But yeah, I absolutely have uh, from from the from the medical paperwork I've read about CPE and TBI and. You know, I don't know which one I fall into. I think traumatic brain injury comes from a single event. You know, like a lot of military personnel have had IEDs explode. Yeah. That's kind of what TBI is. Whereas CTE um, is more gradual. Like football players get that. And then also uh, fighters get that. Boxers, more of a CTE. But then again, you could have had an event uh, where like, for instance... When Shell Sonnen tried to uh, uh, volcano smash my skull through the Bodong uh, boxing ring, you know, that one incident could have been a TBI, yeah. right? Yeah. But for the most part, the whole of it is CTE, um, you know? So, yeah, but I mean, hey, man, I'm not here to complain, you know? I got, I got a, a body full of uh, uh, scars, and I got metal in my arms, I got metal in my hands. I got metal in my face. I got metal all over my body from, from, and, and, and those, that isn't just from, from fighting. You know, that's from what I consider a life well lived, man. Yeah. You know, I got a life well lived. I've been all over the world. I've met people. I've done, I've, I've lived my dreams. I've traveled. I've, I've experienced great things in my life. And, and to do that, you got to be willing to, to get some battle scars. You got to be willing to make some sacrifices and to suffer. So I'm not in any way, I, I would never trade it. But if you're asking me if I got some of that, you know, you're damn right. I do. You're damn right. I definitely do. And I think anybody who's fought for any significant amount of time, Dan Henderson, Randy Couture, uh, Mike Pyle, Dustin Poirier, we all got a little touch of that, a little taste of that. But, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, man, that, that's a, you got to pay your dues. You know, yeah. you ain't getting in this sport and you ain't doing 10 or 15 years without paying those dues. And those are the dues and they will be paid one way or another. What kind of advice do you give? What kind of advice do you give your, um, your fighters as far as taking care of yourself, nutrition? Or is there anything that you really can tell them? Because it's a grueling sport. You're going to go out there and you're going to get hit in the face. My God, the things I tell them, it's unbelievable. I think I terrorize them, really. I, I, I scare the ever-living shit out of them is what I do. Mainly what I do is try not to do any of the dumb shit I did. That's my main thing I try to tell them. But, no, you know, I, after many years in this sport, the things that I think are so important today is uh, training a healthy environment, you know? Train in a gym where people love you and where people care about you. Train under a coach who's worried about your, your health and well-being and is, is building training protocols that push 
hurts you, but don't hurt you. Um, I'm huge on uh, on a recovery as a practice, right? Recovery yeah. as a practice. Back in the day, I mean, we didn't even have recovery. We didn't even know what recovery was. We didn't even do that. That, that was literally like some bullshit. But, you know, I tell my guys all the time, you, you need a pencil in a day or two days a week where one of your practices is you go to the gym and you go in the cold plunge and in the hot tub and in the cold plunge and in the hot tub and swim a little bit and stretch a little bit and do some yoga and recover, rest, heal your body, heal your brain. Heal your intentions because this sport is brutal. And if you're not taking care of you, nobody's taking care of you. And that needs to be a practice that young athletes utilize in their daily walk. Because, you know, this sport hurts while you're doing it. If you didn't take care of your body when you were doing it, it's not going to take care of you when you're done. So that's a big, a big, big, big one that I talk to athletes about. Another one is mindset. You know, I, I mean, 98% of fighting is, is mental, man. It's in your head. It's a mindset thing. It's a, it's a, it's the way you view yourself and your opponent. In this sport, you know, you got to be respectful of your opponents and the people out there. But at the same time, you can't be out there worshiping all these guys because you're trying to go compete against these guys. So if in your head you create these guys into something supernatural, into something super special, how do you ever plan on beating them? Yeah. You know, the enemy is the enemy is the enemy. And you know, if, if they're your if they're your heroes one day, my goal as your coach is to turn those guys into your rivals. So that mental game has to be on lock if you're ever going to be able to beat the top guys in the world. You got to know and believe you can. You can't put them on a pedestal. You can respect them and you can appreciate their skill and their talent, but there's going to come a time where hopefully we can dethrone them and, and you got to be mentally ready for that. Nowadays, you're in the business of giving back. You're the vice president and matchmaker at Bayou Fighting Championship MMA, and you're the owner and head instructor at Gladiator Academy. So is it huge to you to kind of give back to the place that brought you up and to make things better than when it was when you was coming up? Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I got to – I don't know if I'm the best guy to be doing this, you know, to be honest. I don't, I don't think I'm the best – teacher i don't think i'm the best instructor I'm, i don't think i'm the best coach a lot of things i see about myself i wish i were better at and i, and I want to be better and i work to be better every day i work to be better at coaching and teaching and as a promoter i work to be better because i see a lot of flaws in pretty much everything i do you have a lot of younger fighters who is somebody that who is somebody that you are like man he's got it and he's going to be something big. Or is there anybody yet? Oh, yeah, there's a ton of them. Uh, one kid we have fighting UFC right now, AJ Fletcher, is uh, unbelievable. He recently dropped a uh, decision to Matt Silsberger in his last UFC fight. Uh, but, man, I just see that kid just going to the stars. But we got a bunch of other pros at my gym, guys like Elliot Hebert, 
Justice Lamperez, Rylan Malonson, Abe Sellers, Tyreek Malvo, Justin Lee. We got a ton of kids. And, you know, I see something special in every single one of them. You know, I'll be honest, like, you know, I, I kind of, I'm pretty sentimental, even though I have resting asshole face. I, I, I love them all. And I want the best for all of them. And I think they're the greatest thing in the world, every single one. Are they all going to be the next UFC champion? I don't know, probably not. But in my mind, they are. In my mind, they're the greatest thing ever. <laughs> so, so I don't know. I, I'm just doing my best to pass on the things I know. And to be honest with you, like, I love the sport of MMA. And I love competing in MMA and, and, all, and all that. I love coaching and all that. But, you know, the main reason I do this is because the practice of jiu-jitsu and, and mixed martial arts has made me a better man and made me a better husband and a better father. Mm. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I'd have been that without many of the influences I had in my life. My teacher, Rodrigo Medeiros, radically changed my life. And he was there for me at a time when I was wayward, I was wild, and I needed some direction and some focus. And jujitsu and combat sports, no gi jiu-jitsu and MMA and jiu-jitsu tournaments really anchored me down, kept me out of trouble, and taught me a lot of the virtues of humility and compassion and empathy and respect and honor and dignity that I didn't learn coming up as a kid. And uh, all I'm trying to do is pass that on to the people of my community who are willing to learn, who are willing to deal with my resting murderer face and uh, and listen to some of the things I say so that I can help them. Do I want them to have a successful MMA career? Absolutely. I want them to make millions of dollars. But I want them to be a great father more than I want them to be an MMA champion, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So at the end of my podcast, I'd like to ask a question to get you thinking a little bit, get your mind spinning. So Tim Crater and his prime, if there was a fight between Tim Crater and his prime and Dustin Poirier, how do you see that fight going? Oh, he'd have knocked me out. <laughs> why, do you think, why do you think that? Because I think he's better than me at everything. <laughs> yeah, I, think he's, I think he's better than me at everything. He's a better athlete. He's faster, he's a good southpaw, he's better looking, he's got better tattoos, <laughs> he's funnier, he's nicer. Uh, I don't know, you know, when I look at Dustin, I think he's he's better than me at pretty much everything. And uh, and I and I like that, you know. I, yeah. I'm not I'm not trying I, as a coach or, or as a as a teacher, I wanna look at my students and know that I've done enough and given them enough to be way better than me. You know, I, I don't want my students to to be on a on a uh, in a position where where they're they haven't done better than me. I want my students to to supersede me. You know, that that is the goal. Bruce Lee talked a lot about that. You know, the goal of the master is for the student to become the master's master. You know, so when I look at Dustin, I, I feel like he, he's accomplished so much in his life as a fighter. And, and that's awesome. Yeah. 
But I'm definitely more proud of the man he's become and the dad he is and the husband he is and the person he is. And for me, that's what I'm trying to pass on to my guys. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for Dustin because the way this podcast started was it was actually a school project. And my teacher was like, uh, you know, you got to interview somebody personally or um, locally and then interview a star. So I emailed Dustin and he emailed me back and I was like, I don't know. And then he said he would do it. And I was like, oh, I don't know. That's, that's Dustin freaking forehead. I don't know if I can do that. But yeah, he's he's such a humble guy. I mean, he means yeah. It was awesome. But uh, yeah, I think I'm gonna wrap this up. Uh, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this. It means a lot to me. Um, and yeah, I just hope everything goes great for you. Absolutely, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. If you guys ever need anything, let me know. All right.